Well, a couple of uh, opening comments here before we get started. First of all, as always, whenever, whenever I preach, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And what I mean by that is, is that there are a lot of uh, sermons that I read or listen to or commentaries that I dig into, and, uh, and today is no exception. And, and that's why, especially today, I just want to mention that uh, the title for the sermon, as well as the main points, come pretty much from Dan Doriani's commentary on Matthew, just so I give credit where credit uh, is due. The other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, instead of reading the entire passage in the beginning, like we usually do, we're going to read it as we go along this morning. And, and the final heads up I would give you is, um, you know, we usually sprinkle application throughout the sermon. This morning, we're going to do it all at the end, just so you have a heads up about that. So... Um, who has the uh, who has the clicker for the the projector? Ah, thank you. I almost forgot that. That would have been interesting. So, if you will, if you'll turn to Matthew twenty six. What do I have to do to get this on, folks? Just press the. Just click it. They say. There you go. Modern technology. Boy, I wish I had an IT background. Oh, I do have an IT background. <laughs> so if you'll turn to Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16, we're going to be looking at that uh, this morning. And um, I tell you, what, why don't we start off with asking a question here. What is this worth to you? A smartphone, or in this particular picture, an iPhone. What is that worth to you? Here is what it was worth to a number of people in the last year or so. In January, a man attempting to retrieve his dropped smartphone broke through the frozen top of the Chicago River. Two friends attempted to save him, but in the end, only one survived the heartbreaking ordeal. Last year, a 55-year-old man who mistakenly thought that he had thrown his phone away was tragically crushed to death by his building's garbage compactor while he was inside searching for it. Another young man in the Bronx, that would be New York, for you folks playing at home, jumped down on the subway tracks after his phone had fallen and was struck by an incoming train. And this is, to me, the most heartbreaking one. And just a few weeks ago, a 15-year-old girl in Santa Ana, California, died from injuries sustained during the robbery of her iPhone. A man asked her what time it was. She pulled the phone out to tell him, and he grabbed her phone and jumped in a nearby car. And as the car sped away, she jumped on the trunk and held on, and they swerved to try and get her off, and she fell and hit her head, and she died in the hospital a short time later. Through tears, her mother told reporters that her daughter opened her eyes, looked at me for like five seconds, and said, Mom. And that was the last word I heard from her. A psychologist in the article that I read said this, although the cost of these devices is likely a factor in an attempted rescue or protection, it perhaps goes beyond that. We're willing to lay ourselves on the line for our cell phones because so many different parts of our lives are now brought together by these phones. He also observed that some owners may even see these pieces of glass and plastic as representative of the bond to the people they use the phones to communicate with. And this is even more gut-wrenching to me. We become attached to this technology because of our reliance on it, and in a way, these devices become part of us. 
Without them, we may get anxious or upset and even feel disconnected as though we do not exist among our social group. So what is your smartphone worth to you? Does any of what the psychologists observe resonate with you? I I would say probably for most of us, there's some degree that that resonates with us, right? With all of us. You know, is, is, is your smartphone worth that much that you would even maybe risk your life in order to get it back? Well, let's switch gears for a second and ask another question. What is Jesus worth to you? What is he, what is he worth? You see, that's the question that Matthew is going to be asking us in this passage this morning. What is Jesus worth? And different people in this passage respond in different ways. One group determines that Jesus is worth more dead than alive. One woman communicates that Jesus is worth all we have, everything we have. And one man will decide that Jesus is worth 30 pieces of silver. But what about you? How would you answer that question? What is Jesus worth to you? Let's pray together. Father, I, uh, I, I thank you. I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. As, as always, I'm, I'm weighed weighed down by the weight of this responsibility, and I pray that even now you would be equipping me for this task. Let nothing come out of my mouth that is against your word. And Father, I pray for all of us, myself included, that you would be preparing our hearts, softening them, so that we not only hear your truth from your word and, and store it in our brains, but that it would impact our hearts and change the way that we live our lives. And I pray all these things. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen. Well, the first point uh, this morning is Jesus is worth more dead than alive. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 5 uh, and read them together. Chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, in these first couple of verses here, Matthew's making a transition uh, in, in the story, okay, Jesus' public ministry, his teaching ministry is coming to an end, and the action's about to pick up quite a bit because we're speedily moving towards the climax of the story, right? And Matthew starts it off with Jesus' final prediction about his death. Now, this isn't the first time by any means that Jesus has uh, told his disciples about his death. Many times in Matthew, he's given the who and the how and the what, but this is the first time he really specifically spells out the when, it's going to happen. In two days, he says, he'll be handed over and then be crucified. It'll happen during the celebration of uh, the Passover. And then Matthew kind of switches scenes to show that the plan's already in progress, right? The Jewish leaders are gathered in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, and they're plotting to secretly arrest Jesus and to have him killed. But their plan is to wait till after the Passover to avoid a riot. And in in John's uh, gospel, in chapter 11, he gives us even more details about this meeting. There we find out that the catalyst for this emergency Jewish leadership meeting 
is Lazarus being raised from the dead, an undeniable miracle that Jesus has done and has caused all kinds of people to believe in him and to follow him, and the, and the Jewish leadership is panicked, right? They're panicked because the Jews have a long history of rebellion and revolt with the Romans. And when they do, the Romans mercilessly squash it and restore order. And they're beginning to panic because they're afraid you know, there's going to be another one, and maybe this time they won't make it out so, uh, so well. You know, maybe this time the Romans will finally have had enough, and not only will they restore order, but they'll destroy the temple and maybe even the Jewish nation in the process. And I don't know if you remember that, that chapter in John, but you may remember you know, something that the, the shrewd and crafty Caiaphas says in that passage. He says, it's better for one man to die than for the nation to perish. How ironic, right? If he only knew. If he only knew how true that was, cloaked in evil intentions, right? Because it was better for one man to die so that we would not perish, wasn't it? And long story short, you know, as you combine John and Matthew, the council decides that killing Jesus is the right thing to do for the sake of the Jewish nation. They, they ironically conclude that Jesus is worth more dead than alive. And it's ironic because to us, Jesus dying is worth so much to us. But again, it's cloaked in evil motives and intentions. So that's the first point. The second point is Jesus is worth all we have. So to the Jewish leaders, Jesus was worth more dead than alive. But in this next section, we'll see how Jesus is worth all we have. Let's look at verses 6 through 13. Okay? It says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So they're, they're in Bethany, right? And the house of Simon the leper. How would you like to be known by a name like that, right? Simon the leper. I don't know, maybe medical conditions were part of last names back then. I don't know, but I kind of imagine this conversation. You know, yeah, I'm going to Simon the leper's house for dinner tonight. You want to come? Yeah, sure. Where does he live? Well, you know, that neighborhood where Chuck the Anemic lives, you know? Kind of go two and a half stadia down Caesar Parkway, make a right on Caesar Boulevard, and then make a right after Margaret the Narcoleptic's house. You can't miss it, you know? <laughs> well, whatever the case, uh, Simon must be either cured and possibly cured by Jesus. We don't know exactly. Or he's no longer alive, and they just refer to his old house by his name because they'd be breaking the Mosaic law if they were in a house with a full-blown leper, leper and eating there. So chances are Simon's probably cured. But anyway, during dinner, you know, a woman pours very expensive ointment or perfume over Jesus' head and over his entire body. And again, we get some more details from John's account on this. First, we find out uh, that the recently resurrected Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus. 
and that his sister Martha is the one who's serving the dinner. Surprise, surprise. And that his other sister Mary is the one who pours the perfume over Jesus' head and body. Now, you, you remember Mary and Martha, don't you? And you remember how Martha's working her tail off and Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet listening and taking it in, right? And Martha gets all indignant and goes up to Jesus and says, hey, you know, you need to rebuke my sister. She's not helping me. And Jesus pretty much says to her, you know, you're, uh, Martha, you're kind of a worrywart. Your sister's got it right this time, you know. Well, once again, Mary does something that stirs up a bunch of criticism. And once again, she winds up being the one that gets it. She takes an alabaster jar, which probably looks something like that. And you'll notice the long neck. And alabaster, alabaster is used to store very precious materials, and they would seal the neck of the jar. And so in order to use it, you'd have to break the neck, which is what she probably did, and then she poured it all over Jesus' uh, body. And the disciples get pretty bent out of shape out of this, don't they? And if I, as I'm reading this, to be honest, you know, if I were there, I'd be right there with them. I mean, Mary's just dumped a year's worth of wages on Jesus, and, and not only could this have been used, sold and been used to feed the poor, but if I'm a disciple, I am one of the poor right now, right? I mean, this could have fed our group, our motley crew, for, for months, as far as I know. But, you know, Jesus lays the smack down on both me and the disciples. He's, he basically says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. You'll have plenty of opportunity to minister to the poor, but I'm not going to be with you much longer. And what she's done is she's anointed me for my funeral. Now, one side comment here, Jesus is not minimizing ministry to the poor here. I mean, he's just finished talking about the sheep and the goats last week, remember? And saying how ministering to the least of these is ministering to me. And we know that Jesus has cared for the poor throughout his ministry. He's healed them, he's fed them, etc. So Jesus is not, uh, you know, making a statement about the overall priority of mercy ministry here. And on the other side, he's also not making, a, you know, justifying extravagance for the kingdom either. What he's stressing is, is that Mary is responding to a unique situation. You know, you see, unlike the disciples who heard Jesus but really didn't listen, okay, Mary's been listening and she gets it. She, she gets that Jesus has to die, and she believes him when he says it's going to all go down in a couple of days. I mean, Jesus has just said that he's going to be crucified. And people who are crucified are seen as common criminals. And Mary knows that in that culture, custom is, is that criminals don't get proper burials. And part of the proper burial was having perfume poured over the dead body. So she gets it, and she takes the opportunity now to anoint Jesus' body because she may not have another chance. She gives him this costly gift because she loves him. It's like a final thank you to Jesus. Jesus is so precious to Mary that she essentially gives him what amounts to her entire life savings. And she does it because to Mary, Jesus is worth everything we have. Well, the third point is, is, is this. Jesus is worth a servant gored by an ox, and that's verses 14 through 16. You see, Mary doesn't seem to be the only one who gets it. Another person who seems to understand what Jesus is saying 
uh, is, is also present, and his response is going to be a whole lot different than Mary's. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. To the Jewish leaders, Jesus was worth more dead than alive. To Mary, Jesus was worth everything we have. And to Judas, Jesus is worth a servant gored by an ox. Now, I caught your attention, didn't I? You're probably, you know, if I had just said 30 pieces of silver, you would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, 30 pieces of silver. And you probably would have checked out. See, but I, I, I got your attention. And you're probably thinking, what on earth is he talking about, right? See, and I have you, I hope, a little bit. Because Exodus 21 sets 30 pieces of silver as the compensation price to be paid when someone's ox gores another person's servant to death. That was the price, was 30 pieces of silver. Now just let that put things in perspective here for a second, okay? Because that's the price that Judas is paid to betray Jesus, a gored servant. The Jewish leaders got a bargain, and Judas essentially got a six-month vacation because that's how much 30 pieces of silver is worth, about six months' wages. Now, Matthew has already emphasized Judas's treachery because remember in the passage, he, he immediately identifies him as, what, one of the 12. Matthew's saying, listen, this isn't some stranger who betrayed Jesus, okay? This, this is one of his chosen disciples. This is one who was closest to him, who was with Jesus from the beginning, who had seen all the miracles and heard all the teachings. And by contrasting Judas's response with Mary's, Matthew is showing how despicable that act really is. Judas's selfish betrayal follows Mary's selfless devotion. Mary sacrifices a year's wages for Jesus, more than likely everything she has, and Judas betrays a son of God for the price of replacing a gourd servant. You know, Scripture doesn't specifically tell us what Judas's motive was. You know, it probably included greed because other parts of Scripture highlight his greed. It may have flowed from some kind of disillusionment uh, with Jesus. There are theories about that. You know, maybe Jesus realized that it, maybe Judas realized that Jesus wasn't the revolutionary that he thought he was, or or maybe he thought Jesus, you know, always talking about how he had to die had some kind of death wish or something. You know, whatever his exact motives. Judas decides to cash in his chips and call it quits. And the way that he does it shows his despicable estimate of Jesus' worth. As he trades his soul for 30 pieces of silver and betrays the Son of God to the price of a servant gored by an ox. Well, let's make a couple applications this morning from this passage. The first application is beware the deceitfulness of sin. Now let's just take a little trip through this passage this morning and see how deceitful sin can be. You know, I, I have no, I, I'm sure the Jewish council probably had some concern of what would happen, uh, how the Romans would crack down. You know, I'm sure they had some concern that the temple could possibly be destroyed and the Jewish nation could cease to exist if things got out of hand. But ultimately, 
They were cloaking their true evil intentions under the facade of a noble cause. They had been, see, they had been plotting to kill Jesus way before Lazarus had been raised from the dead. I mean, don't you remember how they are getting tired of him thumbing his nose at the establishment, right? They're resentful of him. They're jealous of him. You know, they weren't exactly big fans of all the condemnation he, he threw their way. I mean, they were already plotting to kill him. So the reality is, is that they're disguising their murderous intentions in the costume of a righteous cause, saving their nation. When their biggest concern was more about preserving their power and their position and their status. And the scariest part of it is, is that they had probably convinced themselves that they were actually doing the right thing. The deceitfulness of sin. I mean, how about the disciples' complaint, right? Sounded well-grounded, right? To me, it did anyway, and sounds like true righteous indignation. What a waste, right? We could have sold this perfume and given the money to the poor, but do you know who was leading the charge in that objection? If you read in John and his account, we find out that it's Judas Iscariot who is leading the charge. And John also supplies the information that Judas was treasurer and that he was helping himself to the group's money bag. You see, here's a man who looks like he's championing the cause of the poor, right? When he's really masking his own greed. And not only that, but he enlists others to his cause. The deceitfulness of sin. And and I mean, here's something else about Judas. He was one of the chosen 12, right? He had been with Jesus from the beginning. He had probably preached the good news of the kingdom. You know, maybe he'd even been used to cast out demons or perform miracles. We, you know, we don't know, but he seemed to be a true follower of Jesus at the time and then maybe even thought he was a true believer. But in the end, he turned out to be a wolf in sheep's clothing, betraying the very one that he claimed to follow, the very one who loved him even though he knew what he would do. He betrayed that Jesus with a kiss. And this is the ultimate deceitfulness of sin. You know, the day, the day, my brothers and sisters, that we think that we are not capable of such things is the day that we are in big trouble. Can I just tell you that? I mean, none of us here are plotting the betrayal or the murder of Messiah. Okay, but we are all capable. Every single one of us is the same underlying sin and self-deception. We rationalize our sins away every day, we, or we just plain ignore them. Or, or we convince ourselves that our sinful plans are actually righteous causes, or we, pres- we per, you know, um, present pure motives to the others around us for something, when in essence it's really masking our true evil intentions. And there might even be some of us here this morning, some of us here this morning who are even convinced that they're really Christians. They come to church on Sunday, maybe they go to a Bible study, they serve in some capacity, while the evidence of their unchanged heart screams something else to them. It's the deceitfulness of sin. Let's just take a minute to reflect upon our own hearts. I mean, how many times have you gotten indignant about somebody else's sin and it happened to be the same sin that you happened to struggle with? Right? You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? Or how do you spin information or manipulate other people to get what you want and then rationalize it with the, the ends justifies the means mentality? Have you ever done that? 
How many times has your I'm so concerned about so-and-so really been your attempt to disguise your, gossip, your desire to gossip about so-and-so, right? You know, okay, middle schoolers, here's a couple for you. Are you listening? Wake up. Okay, middle schoolers, ever pretend to be nice to your little brother or sister just because you really want to get something from them? You know, like they're playing with something that you want to play with, so you kind of offer them another toy or some of your stuff, not because you want to bless them, but because you're hoping that once they drop what they're using, you can grab it, right? Or here's another thing. How many times have you gone to your parents like you were looking out for your brother or your sister, and it really came down to you were just tattling on them? Why? Because you want to get them in trouble? Or maybe you want to score points to mom and dad, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. You know, as Christians, we're new creations, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and yet at the same time, in this life, we continuously battle our remaining sinful nature, every single one of us. I mean, I see the deceitfulness of sin in my own life, especially when Christine and I fight. And yeah, that's right, you heard me. I just said that Christine and I fight. Okay, so you really didn't think you were the only ones who wrestle in your marriage, did you? Because if you're thinking that, you know, not only can I personally, you know, verify that you're not alone, but also I've been here almost three years as a pastor. I can tell you, you are not alone, okay? So here's my little aside to you. You're, you're not alone. So please come see one of us and get some help, okay? It's just my little pastoral aside. But anyway, getting back to, to my fighting. <laughs> you know, when Christina and I fight... I can't tell you how many times I have been convinced that it was Christine's issue that has gotten us into this mess, okay? When it was really about my own sinful attitude and behavior. I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, me sharing the truth in love was really me just going for her jugular, right? How many times I've used, you know, in my head, I'm just defending myself and my dignity as justification for my own venomous words of contempt. So many times, and I thought I was the one who was seeing things clearly. A short time later, or sometimes a long time later, poor Christine, you know, I felt like a deer caught in the headlights as I realized that it's my own sin and self-deception that had blinded me to reality. Over and over and over again, I mean, how do we battle this deceitfulness of sin? Well, I mean, we saturate our minds with the Word of God and have the, the truth of the Word of God permeate our heads and our hearts. We need to pray that the Lord would open our hearts and help us to see and our eyes to see the truth and to embrace it. You know, we, we need to have one or two people in our lives who we get real with, okay? We drop the act, we drop the facade, and we let them in far enough so that they're able to call us out on stuff and lovingly confront us. And most of all, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to believe the gospel more deeply. Now, why do I say that? Because if we believe the gospel more deeply, we learn to rest in Jesus' righteousness more deeply. You see, and if we, if we rest in Jesus' righteousness, we tend to spend less energy defending our own. You know, if we, if we drink from the well of grace more deeply, we start to come out of hiding and we stop pretending like we're better than we really are. The cross of Christ frees us from our guilt and shame. It, it frees us to unflinchingly face the ugliness that is in our hearts. 
and it also frees us and gives us the freedom to quickly repent of that ugliness. So I pray this morning, Lord, please help us really believe the grace of your gospel and let it sink deeply. Let it sink deeply and change us. That's my prayer for us this morning, myself included. You know, another thing, does that mean my prayer was answered when the lights flickered? I'm just wondering. (laughs) Another thing this passage teaches us is that we have hope because Jesus is sovereign. Have you ever thought, you know, why was able Jesus to predict his own death? You know, well, for one thing, because Jesus is God and God is sovereign over all things, so Jesus is sovereign over all things, including his own death, okay? But another reason he can predict his own death is this, and that is because his death is part of that sovereign and divine and eternal plan of redemption, that plan of God redeeming a people for himself. You see, before the foundation of the world, the three members of the Trinity determined their rescue plan to save their people from their sins. And all of human history is sovereignly governed by that plan. Nothing can stop that plan of redemption. Nothing can thwart it. Everything works together to accomplish it. I mean, why would the Jewish council hand Jesus over to the Romans? Because it had already been divinely decreed that that's how Jesus would die. That's why. You know, the council planned to hand Jesus over after the Passover, remember? But Jesus says, nope, that's, that's not how it's going down, guys. You know, hate to break this to you, but I'm calling the shots here. I'm God, and your plan is actually going to start kicking in two days from now, during the Passover, because I am the fulfillment of the Passover, because I am the Lamb of God. I am the divine Lamb without spot or blemish or defect, the one whose blood will mark his people and rescue them from their sins. I mean, why could Jesus declare that Mary's beautiful act would be remembered wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world? Why? Because the spread of the gospel had already been divinely ordained. Because its success was divinely guaranteed. Because Jesus knew his plan would not fail and his death would not be in vain. Before the beginning of time, it had been ordained that the kingdom would be filled with people from every tongue and tribe and nation including Northern Virginia, which wasn't even part of the known world in Jesus' time. I mean, why did Judas get the amount that he did for betraying the Son? Because the Father had sovereignly decreed and the Holy Spirit had divinely prophesied through Zechariah that Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And so that is what Judas got. You know, as... As Jesus hung on the cross and Satan sneered and his demons rejoiced thinking that they had victory, the truth of Jesus' declaration in John 10 still reigned supreme when he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus Christ is Lord and Master over his own life and death. And we have hope because he is also Lord and Master over ours. Let's cling to that as we face whatever comes our way from the divine hand, as we deal with trials and challenges, as we walk through those dark seasons, as we answer the call to suffer and we endure that as we take our last breath, let's cling 
to that. Let's cling to the reality that everything that comes our way has passed through the divine throne room first. Everything that comes our way comes through that throne room and it's bathed in the Father's love that did not even spare his own son for us. And it's bathed in the blood of that son who even now is interceding for us. And it's bathed in the power of the Holy Spirit who by that same power will never let us go. I mean, we have hope because not a sparrow falls from the sky without a divine okay. And because God has undeniably demonstrated through Jesus Christ that we, his children, are worth infinitely more than a sparrow. Now, all this sets the stage for our last application. In light of this, you know, what is Jesus worth to you? I mean, Matthew's pressing us with that question. What is Jesus worth? You know, how will you answer that? Or maybe a better way of putting it is, how are you answering that question? You know, I, I think about Mary's response to Jesus in this passage. I, I mean, shouldn't we, on, on this side of the cross, you know, even, even more, live as if Jesus is worth everything we have? Uh, Mary only saw a shadow of his worth, right? And yet he was so precious to her that even before he went to the cross, she loved him enough to give him everything she had. How much more? for us, those who are on this side of his death and his resurrection. I mean, Jesus gave everything he had for us. Isn't he worth everything we have? I mean, without Jesus, we're worth nothing. Shouldn't he be worth everything to us? You know, I think of Christians all around this, the world this morning, believers who are right now, who are giving it all for Jesus. I think of Christians in Iraq and Syria and Nigeria and Sri Lanka. They're losing their jobs. They're fleeing their homes. They're leaving family behind. Their blood is being spilled for their faith in Christ. Jesus is worth so much to them that they're willing to sacrifice even, everything, even their very lives in some cases. What is Jesus worth to you? Now, how are you answering that question with your life? You know, I, I look at my own heart and, and I'm, I'm saddened. I, I really am because I look at my heart and I say, you know, what does, what does my heart really say about Jesus' real worth to me when I'm so unwilling to give Jesus more, right? When I spend so much of my own time on myself and guard it so selfishly, when, when it's so hard to get me to part with more of my money, when, when I'm afraid of what someone else will think if I tell them about Jesus or share the gospel with them. You know, the, I, I might get really indignant about how despicable Judas is and how despicable he was you know, for betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But here's the reality. The reality is, is that every single day I sin and I sell out my Savior for a whole lot less than that. Every day. Well, here's my hope and here's your hope and your motivation to change. You see, if, if we could go back and talk to all those people that we mentioned earlier and ask them, you know, was it worth it? Was it, was it worth it to sacrifice your life for your smartphone, to die for, for glass and plastic? What do you think they would say? You know, if, if somehow we could go back to some of the members of the Jewish council and we said, was it worth it, guys, orchestrating the murder of the Messiah? 
You know, what, what do you think they would say? If, if we could go back and ask Judas and say, you know, Judas, was it worth it to sell out your friend? Was it worth it to sell out the Son of God for chump change? What do you think he would say? But what if I were to go to Jesus right now and I were to ask him, was it worth it, Jesus, to put on a body of flesh, to to deal with the struggles and pains of being human? Was it, was it worth it to love someone you knew would betray you, to allow yourself to be arrested and beaten and spit on and mocked? Was it worth it, Jesus? Allowing yourself to be hung on the cross like a common criminal, bearing the full weight of your Father's eternal wrath? Was it worth it to do all this for rebels and God-haters and sinners who would turn out to be half-hearted disciples who would struggle with treasuring so many things above you. Was it worth it? Was it worth it, Jesus, to die for people like that? Was it worth it to shed your precious blood for people like that, like me? Like John? Like Tom? Like Paula? Like Alex? Like Catherine? Like Anne-Marie? Like Rick? Was it worth it, Jesus? And I know what he would say. He would smile and say to me, Was it worth shedding my blood for them, Tom? Every drop. Every drop. You see, that's the reality that leads us to repentance. And that's the truth that propels our hearts to change, to be more like our Savior. Why? Because how can those like us who was and is worth so much to Jesus, not long for him to be worth everything to them. Please pray with me. Father, I just, I thank you for your mercy in the gospel. I thank you for Jesus Christ. We would be so lost and hopeless without him. There's not a single one of us in this room who treasure Jesus as much as we should have, as much as we should, rather. Would you help us with that? We will never love you perfectly in this life. We will never obey you perfectly in this life, and yet you love us and always will with an unending love. But would you just give us a taste of heaven in this world? Would you just help us to stir our hearts to love you more deeply and to trust you more deeply? Just stir our hearts to want to be more like you, Father. Unleash your Holy Spirit in our hearts and help us to not only glorify you and to fulfill the purpose that you have for us, but also use us as we become more like you and we share our need of you, and we don't become more like you. Use us to minister to those who don't know you, and use us to draw them in so they can wrestle along with us too. And I pray all these things in the name of the Sovereign One, the Matchless One, the Most Marvelous One, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And I, This is my prayer for myself. And this is my prayer for you, my brothers and sisters, that this would be more true of us 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Brothers and sisters, go in peace. Have a wonderful Sunday.